We're going through the Gospel of John, and uh, if you haven't been with us, we'll uh, back up and give you a little bit of an overview of um, uh, the, uh, well, the, the background of the book, at least. The, uh, the, the last two books of the, uh, of the New Testament that were written uh, was John's Gospel and the, what we know of as the book of Revelation. The Apostle John, one of Jesus' original 12 disciples, was the author of both. We don't know which one was written first, but we know they were both written about the same time in 92, 93, 94 A.D. That's about 60 years after Jesus is, uh, uh, went to the cross and was raised again from the dead. And uh, John is the last of the apostles that are that is alive on the earth. Now, to contrast some of the things that uh, that take place in some of the the, uh, the themes of uh, some of the other letters, particularly those that were written by the apostle Paul, um, the biggest obstacle to the church in Paul's day, uh, he died somewhere around 65, 66 A.D. Perhaps uh, at least that's the best evidence we have. Somewhere in mid 60s. Uh, so Paul's been off the scene for about 30 years by the time this, uh, this, these last two letters are written. In Paul's day, the, the biggest obstacle was, uh, was the, the Jews, the religion of the Jews. And he talks a lot about that. You remember the, the big issue of the day is, uh, is it okay to eat meat offered unto idols? Well, that was a, a real question among the, the church because of the law of Moses and some of the restrictions thereof. By the time John writes his two, by the time he authors his two books, the letters to the church, Judaism is no more. The Romans have invaded and destroyed the city of Jerusalem in 70 A.D. They took the temple apart brick by brick, just like Jesus said that uh, that would be done. And uh, and so as a result, by the time we come to, to God, John's gospel and the book of Revelation, is a totally different situation from from uh, every other, really every other. Uh, of uh, one of the New Testament books or letters. In John's day, there were teachers, uh, and by that I don't mean Christian teachers, that there was, uh, uh, there was an element of, uh, of wrong doctrine that had got into the church that was questioning certain things about Jesus and, and was he a real man or was it just an idea that God gave to us and some of that kind of stuff. There were some real weird things that were taking place in the church, but there were also things that were taking place through the, the, um, uh, in the philosophical realm, if you will, where people were denying that Jesus ever came to the earth, where Jesus, people were denying that Jesus was the Son of God. And as a result, that's John's theme for the the, uh, the gospel that bears his name. Now, we've seen a couple of things. We saw Jesus start off in his ministry. We saw the beginning of miracles take place. We saw in chapter 2, verse 23, that after Jesus was at uh, Jerusalem during the Feast of the Passover... He performed a lot of miracles and many people believed in him because of those things. Then it tells us that he went to the Gentiles and, and uh, uh, John identifies. John didn't spend a lot of time talking about Jesus among the Jews, but chapter 5 is one of the places that he does. And, and the reason for that is he's identifying that Jesus was the Son of God. So we'll pick up in chapter 5 beginning in verse 1. It says, after this there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. One of the... Um, uh, one of the, uh, the um, well, I don't know exactly how to say this. John uses a phrase over and over and over again to identify the, um, the sequence of events and the things that the Holy Ghost is inspiring him to write. And this, uh, this phrase is it. It's uh, translated in the King James after this. It's uh, a better translation from the original Greek would be after these things. Now, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke all had a uh, a similar thing to show the progression of what the Holy Ghost was inspiring them to write, but they use different terms. 
Matthew's thing was uh, then. He uses then to say a lot of things about moving from one event to the next. He said then, and then it, and then it describes the event. Um, Mark uses the word immediately, a lot in his gospel. And he's talking about the shift from one event to the next event. Luke uses the phrase, it came to pass. But John uses after these things. Now, when Ember uses after these things, he's showing a progression. It's uh, it's used seven times in the Gospel of John, and it's used nine times throughout the book of Revelation. So it's uh, um, we don't know if it was his normal way of talking. You know, we all have um, patterns of speech and idiosyncrasies about what we say and how we say them. We don't know if that was the case with John or if this was the Holy Ghost uh, prompting him to do this. But each time he's talking about... Uh, he brings it or uses it to show the pattern or the sequence of events that the Holy Ghost is uh, is inspiring him to relate. So he says, after this, there was a feast of the Jews. Now, what feast was this? Well, we know in chapter 2, it was the feast of Passover. Uh, there's got to be a reason why the Holy Spirit does not tell Paul or tell John to tell us what feast this was. Now, there were three feasts, according to Deuteronomy chapter 16, verse 16. There were three feasts. There were seven different feasts of Israel, but three of them, uh, all the men were required to go up to Jerusalem each year. Uh, one was the Feast of the Passover. The other was Feast of Pentecost, which was uh, 50 days after Passover. And then the third was the Feast of Tabernacles. Now, most Bible scholars agree that this is talking about the Feast of Pentecost. But then the question is still out there, why did not the Holy Ghost tell us? Why did he just say a Feast of the Jews? It's got to be one of the Feasts of Israel that was commanded by Moses why didn't the Holy Ghost tell us? Well, one possible explanation, and I don't know that this satisfies uh, or should satisfy us all, but one possible explanation is that the Feast of Pentecost was the only one of the Jewish feasts that was not uh, completed. You know, they were all types of things that would be uh, completed by and, and uh, um, uh, when Jesus came and, and through his action. The Feast of Pentecost is the only one that was not. It was the only one that was not completed, that the type was not fulfilled until after Jesus was raised from the dead. And you know, as well as I do, that it was on the the, uh, the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 that the Holy Ghost was poured out. That's when it was completed. So that may be one reason why the, uh, the, the Holy Ghost did not inspire him to tell us that it was the Feast of Pentecost. But it makes sense that it is because if it's a progression of things, this would be 50 days, roughly a month and a half after the events that took place in the Feast of the Passover in John chapter 3. Well, the sequence fits then, doesn't it? So let's assume for the sake of discussion uh, that it's the Feast of Pentecost. After this, there was a feast of the Jews and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market. The margin of my Bible says instead of market, it says the word gate. So yours may have the same thing. The word market's in italics, so it's uh, it's a word that was added by the uh, the translators. So it's talking about the sheep gate. And next to the, um, uh, there is at Jerusalem by the sheep market or sheep gate, a pool, which is called in the Hebrew tongue Bethesda, having five porches. Now, Bethesda means house of mercy. In these lay a great multitude of impotent folk, a blind halt withered, waiting for the moving of the water. For an angel went down at a certain season into the pool and troubled the water. Whosoever then first, after the troubling of the water, stepped in, was made whole of whatsoever disease he had. Now, there's a couple of things that you need to recognize about this. The sheep gate is talked about in Nehemiah chapter 3 and verse 1. Um, or, well, actually throughout the, uh, the third chapter, but it, uh, it makes mention specifically in Nehemiah 3, 1 when the, uh, the temple and the walls of Jerusalem was, were being rebuilt. They made ten different gates. The first gate, the one that was closest to the entrance of the temple was called the sheep gate or the gate of the lamb. 
Now, what this signifies is it was through this gate and only through this gate that the lambs that would be used as the sacrifice for Israel would be brought through. They had a special and specific uh, entryway into the temple. So this whole story means is significant of and, and a type of, it's symbolic of, Jesus entering into the temple. So on the day of Pentecost or at the Feast of Pentecost, Jesus enters into the temple and, and as he comes into Jerusalem for the purpose of coming to the temple to provide a service or a benefit for Israel, because that's who he's sent to, where does he go? He goes to the pool, which is right next to where the lambs enter in, that's called the house of mercy. Now, this pool is a place where the angels would come down. This is something that God would do periodically, obviously, if it was scheduled for the first Thursday of the month, and everybody would know when to be there and and what to do and be prepared for it. But nobody knew when it was going to happen, how often it was going to happen or anything else. So they're there out there. The people that are healing are out there every day. Now, what's significant about this also is notice that it does not call it a feast of Israel. It says it's a feast of the Jews. In other words, the Jews have turned this into something that was other than, separate from, and totally different from what Moses commanded by the word of the Lord in the Old Testament. Now it's become their ritual. And notice what it says. It says there was a feast of the Jews and a great multitude of impotent folk, of blind, halt, withered, waiting for the moving of the water. Here's what happens when man takes the things of God and turns them into their own. The Jews have got this great feast. Here's a great celebration. Notice all the people that are helpless. Now, this is a type of the condition of Israel at the time, because notice what it says. It uses four specific words, well, five words that we want to point out. The first word it uses is it says there was a great multitude of impotent folk. In other words, that means Israel was helpless. They've got the word, they've got the covenant, but they're helpless. Now, how is it that they're helpless? Notice it says they're blind. That means they can't see the truth. It It says that they're halt. It means they can't walk according to the things of God. And the third thing it says is that they're withered, which indicates the hand, which means they're not able to do the works of God. And so what is the result of the nation of Israel? It's it's shown symbolically in this situation at the Pool of Bethesda where they're waiting for some visible manifestation of something that will tell them this is God and God's still with us. That's all they got left. Now, the Pool of Bethesda itself represents the law of Moses. Because it was given by the angels. It was, it was given through the angels' disposition, the Bible says. And as a result, the law of Moses was designed to provide life for anybody and everybody that would take it. But the problem with that is you had to keep the law completely. You couldn't break the law in any way whatsoever. And if you did, then that which was ordained to be life, you found to be death. Paul says that the only reason that the law was given is to show the offense. In other words, to show that you needed a Savior and you couldn't do it on your own. Well, that's what the Pool of Bethesda really symbolizes. That's what it's a type of. It's a type of God's sovereignty. It's a type of God's willingness to help man, but you're going to need some help. You're going to need somebody to do something for you that you can't do for yourself. And that's why Jesus picks the guy that he does. Verse 5, and it says, And a certain man was there which had an infirmity thirty and eight years. Thirty-eight years is the number of years that Israel spent in the wilderness after they received the law of Moses because of their disobedience in the promised land. Again, it's talking about Israel. So it says, and a certain man was there which had an infirmity 38 years. By the way, that's Deuteronomy 2, verse 14, if you want to check that out. When Jesus saw him lie and knew that he had been now a long time in that case, he said unto him, wilt thou be made whole? 
wilt thou be made whole? Notice it says, and, and, and this is real interesting to me, Jesus always asked the man, what will you have? Jesus didn't show up saying, I'm the son of God. He didn't show up and say, you know, I do miracles and I've been all over the place and this is nothing for me. He asked him, what will you have? Now, the man identifies where he's at. He said, sir, I have no man. If only I had somebody. See, I'm not just crippled. I'm helpless because it's going to take somebody else to do something for me. But the somebody else he's looking for is in the wrong place. He's looking for somebody to get him into the water to be the first guy in. I have no man when the water is troubled to put me into the pool, but while I am coming, another steps down before me. Now, folks, let me let me point something out to you. You can look at this uh, back up a couple of chapters if you want to. Chapter 2 and verse 23 talks about the result or the end result of after Jesus has been at the, the, uh, the Feast of Pentecost just a month and a half earlier. It says... John chapter 2, verse 23, Now when he was at Jerusalem at the Passover in the feast day, many believed in his name which they saw the miracles which he did. We're just talking about a month and a half later. When Jesus asked this guy, Wilt thou be made whole? There's a lot of different ways this guy could have answered. He could have said, You know, there was a guy a couple of months ago that was here. And man, he did all kinds of miracles. And, and, and if I can just get back to where he is, then yeah, I will be whole. But he's not looking for anything except some visible evidence. He's only looking for some visible God-inspired event, God-initiated event, so that he doesn't have to do anything. He's even looking for somebody else to be the one to put him into the water. Now, folks, I, I don't mean to be cruel about this, but why couldn't he lay on the edge and roll in? I mean, is that not possible for him? If I was somebody in his situation and this troubling of the water was the only hope I had, which is what he indicates, I'm looking for the water to be troubled. If I'm looking for that to be my answer, I'm going to have one foot already in. I'm going to be dangling my toe over the edge. I'm going to be doing something so that my body part, some body part of mine, is the first thing that touches that water. Why not him? Because it indicates this is what Israel was doing. They're looking for God to do something, but they're looking in the wrong place. Jesus is the very one that could have done and does provide the miracle for him, the miracle of healing for him. But notice what happens when God initiates it. It doesn't work for everybody. Now, folks, imagine these five porches full of, of sick folks, these five porches full of people that are crippled, and halt, blind, lame, uh, or uh, withered, and so forth. How often did this thing happen? Well, we don't know. It doesn't make the, it doesn't give us the impression that it's an everyday thing. It doesn't even give me the impression that it was an every week thing. And whoever is the first one in gets something, but look at how hopeless and helpless that would make the other people feel. I mean, there may be a rush into the water. There may be five people that get into the water. Maybe a photo finish to get in. I, I don't know. But only one person gets anything. Can you imagine the celebration that would be on the part of the one, but the despair that there would be on the part of everybody else. Because you can't tell. If God's going to initiate it, you can't tell what's going to happen or when. You can't tell what the circumstances surrounding it are going to be. And this is where a lot of the church is. They're waiting for God to do it. You'll have people come to healing school and say, Pastor Mike, pray for me. I'll ask them, well, do you believe you'll be healed if we lay hands on you? Well, I believe it's, if it's God's will, it'll work. Well, you can't pray for somebody in a situation like that. Because they won't receive their healing and they'll go off blaming it on not being God's will. 
And that's exactly where a lot of the church is. They're waiting for God to do something so then they'll know. That's what this guy is doing. Now, this guy changes. I don't mean to leave a wrong impression of this guy because he makes a great, great move and shift in his life. Jesus speaks to him. He doesn't declare, wait a minute, remember a month and a half ago when all the miracles took place here in the day of Pentecost, in the, the Passover? If this guy is a Jew, then he was there during that time just as much as he's here during the day of Pentecost or the Feast of Pentecost, the week-long Feast of Pentecost. Because all the men of of Israel were commanded to come to Jerusalem for the feast. Those three feasts, everybody's got to be there. So he was in town for this. Jesus didn't ask him. You remember hearing those stories a month and a half ago during the Passover? Well, that was me. I can do something about this. Jesus simply makes a command. Actually, he gives him three commands. He says to him in verse 8, Jesus says to him, Rise, that's first, Second, take up your bed. And third, walk. He gives him three things to do that are impossible for a crippled man to do. How does a crippled man rise? How does a crippled man take up his bed? That implies that he's upright. How does a crippled man walk? Well, he can't do that from laying down. He can't do that from a prone position. Jesus gives him three things to do. Rise, take up your bed, and walk. And then it says, and immediately the man was made whole and took up his bed and walked. And the same day was the Sabbath. The Jews, therefore, said unto him that was cured, It is the Sabbath day. It is not lawful for thee to carry thy bed. Now, notice how this guy changes. This guy is first looking for the water to move. Angels come down and move the water every now and then. First one in gets something, and he's been banking on that for how long? How many of the 38 years of his crippled life has he been at that pool waiting for something to happen? Could have been a long time. I can't imagine he's a newcomer to this. I'm guessing he's been there year after year after year. Who knows how long he's been there? He's there long enough to know that he's got to be quicker than he is if he's going to get anything. I guess they didn't have the Baskin-Robbins numbering system at that time. You know, where everybody took turns. And can't you imagine the fighting going on between the people trying to get to there? Trying to be the first one in. Now this guy, look at what he does. Here's the Jews, the most intimidating group around, the ones that can can order him to be beaten, the ones that can uh, brand him as an outcast, excommunicate him from from temple worship and so forth. Notice it says, the Jews said to him, it is not lawful for you to carry your bed. And he answered them and said, he that made me whole, the same said unto me, take up my bed and walk. In other words, the, the guy that healed me told me to do it. Well, what about the law of Moses? Well, this guy healed me. If he healed me, I'm going to do what he says. Notice the change in his life. Now he's not looking for anything except what the guy that healed him told him to do. Verse 12, then they asked of him, what man is that which said unto thee, take up thy bed and walk? Let us know who that is. We'll bring an accusation against him according to the law. And he that was healed wist not or knew not who it was, for Jesus had conveyed himself away, a multitude being in that place. Shows what he was and wasn't looking for, doesn't it? He's looking for an event. He's looking for some move of God that he's familiar with, the troubling of the water, to take place. And there was somebody that walked right in the midst of him and had healing power, and he didn't even know who he was. After the fact, he didn't even know who it was. But Jesus didn't leave him like that. Verse 14, afterward, Jesus found him in the temple. And said unto him, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Now, folks, don't assume that that means he's been sick or crippled for 38 years because he did something wrong in the first place. That's not what that means. 
it's possible that that could have a bearing, uh, have something to do with it. But that's not what these words mean in and of themselves. This is something that's a law of Moses. The law of Moses is the blessings of God come through obedience and curses come through disobedience. So Jesus is just telling him that which the law has already said. He says, go and sin no more lest the worst thing come upon you. In other words, he said, now you've got a responsibility here. You've got a responsibility to live right to maintain the blessings of God. Now, folks, the Bible says God doesn't change. So even though we have a new covenant, a better covenant established upon better promises, that's still the truth. There's too many Christians that think that they can get the blessings of God by living in disobedience to his word. Doesn't work that way. God will bless you to whatever degree he can. But it's the word of God that opens the doors of blessing for us. It's obedience to his word. We have just as much of a command to obey the word under the New Testament as we do under the Old Testament. And it should be easier for us because we do it out of a heart of love. Back then it was do it or else. For us, it's not do it or else. It's do it because Jesus has, has saved you, because Jesus has redeemed you, because all things belong to you through the shed blood of Jesus. That always excites people. But it's true, isn't it? Jesus said, Behold, thou art made whole. Sin no more, lest a worse thing come upon thee. Notice in verse 15, it said, Then the man departed and told the Jews. He's not obligated to do that. The Jews asked him, Who was it that told you to, to, to carry your bed on the Sabbath day? Who was it that commanded you to break the laws of, of the Jews? Who was this? You tell us who he is. We'll take care of him. This man comes back. After he finds out who Jesus is, who the guy is that spoke to him, the guy who troubled the water for him, not through the pool of Bethesda, but because he was the lamb who came through the sheep gate, he finds Jesus and turns around to the Jews. He's not intimidated by him. He says, I found out who it was. It was Jesus. Now, folks, the, the religious leaders, the Jews, know who Jesus is. Just a month and a half ago, 50 days before, Jesus is in the uh, the temple doing all kinds of miracles. And they send Nicodemus, one of their own, to Jesus to try to incorporate him into their group. And Jesus wouldn't have anything to do with them. They know exactly who Jesus is. So when the this uh, man that's been healed says, I found out who it was, it was Jesus. They've got to be slapping their heads saying, oh, no, not him again. Not him again. And then notice what happens. The man departed and told the Jews that it was Jesus which made him whole. And therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Now, the fifth chapter of John is uh, is really broken up into two sections. The first section is the first 15 verses, which we just finished, which talks about the healing of the man at the pool. The last half is where Jesus makes a defense of his deity. And it's a it's um, uh, well, there's one other place in the Gospel of John that that might be equal to it in um, uh, in Jesus declaration of who he is. But but nothing else in Scripture tells us about this. None of the other gospel writers put it together like this and give us the detail. Now remember, John is trying to to counter some of the teaching that's in um, uh, that's in the world that's affecting Christians um, in that part of the world, uh, at least. 
about Jesus and whether or not he was really a man that lived here on the earth, whether or not he was the son of God and so forth. And so he, he gathers things together. But you know that John being right in the middle of Jesus and these events and all these things that took place, John, even though it's not mentioned that the disciples were there, they followed him to Jerusalem. They've got just as much a responsibility to go to the Feast of Pentecost in Jerusalem as Jesus did. So they're there with him. They are witnessing these things. And so he's going to give eyewitness testimony of what happened in the Jews' attitude and their persecution of Jesus. Jesus answered them, we'll read verse 16 again, and therefore did the Jews persecute Jesus and sought to slay him because he had done these things on the Sabbath day. Jesus makes seven declarations about his deity. Here's the first one, verse 17. Jesus answered them, My father worketh hitherto, and I work. Therefore the Jews sought the more to kill him because he not only had broken the Sabbath but said also that God was his father, making him equal with God. Three times the Bible tells us about Jesus saying something to make himself equal with God, and they're all in John's gospel. Here in John chapter 5, in John chapter 8, about verse, uh, what is it, verse 58, somewhere like that, he said, before Abraham was, I am. He identifies himself. If you don't recognize the language, it's Jesus saying, I am that I am, just like God said to Moses in the burning bush. I personally think it was Jesus who said it to Moses in the burning bush. But he's identifying himself with a phrase that all of Israel knows is God's and God's alone. I am that I am. Jesus says in John chapter 8, speaking to the Gentile, or speaking to the Jews, the Jewish uh, religious leaders, he says to them, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say before Abraham was, I was. He said, before Abraham was, I am. And that time they wanted to do the same thing as they did here. They took up stones killing. Second time is over in John chapter 10, about verse 30. Jesus makes the declaration, I and my father are one. Every time Jesus made the statement that he was one with the father, they tried to kill him. They started making plans or took specific action from that moment to try to kill him. Now, notice it says the Jews wanted to kill him because he made himself equal with God. Jesus does not answer them. We'll go on to to, uh, uh, to verse 19. Then answered Jesus and said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, the Son can do nothing of himself. We'll read the rest of it in just a moment. Notice that Jesus didn't say, No, you're putting words in my mouth. Jesus did not say, Wait a minute, you're twisting what I'm saying. Jesus did not say, Wait a minute, I didn't say anything about being equal with God. No, you're going to have a collection of seven different statements where Jesus is identifying, I am equal with God, and here's why. There's no doubt, folks, there is absolutely no doubt in the minds of those that hear, the religious leaders, that Jesus is going to address, that Jesus is claiming to be the Son of God. No doubt whatsoever. His first statement is, my Father worketh here too, and I work. He's declaring the works of God are my works. We're one and the same. The second place is in verse 19, the second declaration, Jesus answered, And said unto them, Verily, verily, I say unto you, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he seeth the Father do. The word seeth is an interesting word because it means, the same word used over in uh, verse 44, it means to look upon with with the idea of perceiving or knowing. So Jesus is literally saying, The Son can do nothing of himself but what he knows of the Father. That's what he does. He's talking about personal knowledge. He's talking about intimate knowledge between him and his Father because we're one and the same. So when he says, I see the Father, we think of it from a standpoint that Jesus saw with his physical eyes or saw with his spiritual eyes. Well, in the sense that he saw with his spiritual eyes and had perfect knowledge, yeah. But he's not talking about something that he's looking at. He's talking about something that he knows of God. 
He's talking about something that he knows of the Father. The Son can do nothing of himself, but what he seeth or knoweth the Father does. For what things soever he doeth, the Father doeth, these also doeth the Son likewise. The word likewise means not only does he do the same stuff, he does it in the same way. So here the Jews, they think they've got him on something. Now remember what the Jews know about Jesus. There's nothing about Jesus that would signify that he would even qualify as a prophet. In John chapter 8, Nicodemus stands up and tries to defend Jesus in his ministry. And they bring accusation against Nicodemus and and said to him, Search the Scriptures. You know that no prophet can come from Nazareth. So there's nothing about Jesus that would identify to the Jews, the religious leaders, nothing about Jesus or his lifestyle that would indicate that Jesus has any sign of God upon him whatsoever. None. He's not from the right tribe. He doesn't come from the right geographical location. He's a, he's a, a, he's born into the most humble of circumstances. He's born into poverty. He was born among the animals. He grows up as a carpenter's son. I mean, there's, there's no great crowd or of, of, uh, noble men or women that are following him. He's got a group of ragtag fishermen that are, that are hanging around, but that doesn't impress anybody. He's never been to the religious schools that you're supposed to go to if you're a priest or or somebody that's of of renown, somebody that's supposed to know God. There is nothing about Jesus that causes the Jews to look at him and say, well, maybe, just maybe, not a thing in the world other than what he's doing. And Jesus is going to identify that at the end of the chapter. So he says, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees or knows of the father. What is he saying? He's saying, I know a lot more about God than you do. And he's saying, I can't do anything independently of God the Father because we're one and the same. If I were to do something independently of God the Father, if the works that you're upset with me doing, like healing on the Sabbath, is something different from the Father, then I couldn't be one with him. But he's using it as a sign that this is what God does. Now, folks, can I ask you a question? Did God rest on the Sabbath day? The Bible says in the book of Genesis, it says on the seventh day God rested. Literally, that word means he made an end of everything that he made. Did God have to rest because he'd had a tough week? Why did God rest? What's the point of the Sabbath day? The purpose for the Sabbath day was for man, not for him. God never has really rested on the Sabbath day. He made an end of everything that he made. In other words, it says he got his work done in the first six days, so he didn't have anything else to do. So what did he do from that point on? He began to fellowship with his with the man that he made. And that's what the Sabbath day was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about man putting aside his work so that he could come fellowship with his father, his heavenly father. So this idea of the Sabbath being something that God holds sacred, God holds sacred time with you. But for us, because God lives on the inside of us, every day ought to be the Sabbath day for us. Shouldn't it? I mean, should we have a day of the week where we spend with God? Or should we be spending every day whenever we can with God? I mean, he goes with you wherever you go. What are you going to do? Ignore him Monday through Saturday? But then Sunday, act like you're his best buddy? Unfortunately, that's what too much of the church seems to do. But it's all about the Sabbath. It's all about the Jews and their ritual. Now, remember what their ritual has done. Their ritual created a feast, a celebration, but left great multitudes of helpless people. And Jesus is the one that fixed that. Verse 20. 
For the Father loveth the Son, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth, and he will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. Here's the third declaration that Jesus makes about being equal with God. He said, there aren't any secrets between me and God. There's nothing that God knows. There's nothing God has. There's nothing God does that he doesn't show me. No secrets whatsoever. He's talking about perfect knowledge. He's saying, I, as the Son of Man, am equivalent to or up to, able to, comprehend all the things that God does and all the ways that God does them. There is nothing that the Father doesn't show me. Now, folks, I want you to keep something in mind about this. Jesus is declaring himself to be the Son of God. But there is nowhere that the Bible says he's more the Son of God than you are if you've made him the Lord of your life. I know people have a hard time with that because we recognize Jesus as the only begotten Son. But actually, the Bible says that Jesus was the first begotten from the dead. So you've been made the sons of God just as much, sons and daughters of God, just as much as Jesus was the son of God. You don't have a second rate or a second generation life of God in you where Jesus had the first generation, the first cut. You've got the same life he had. So when Jesus says these things about himself, we would never dare to say these things out loud. But there's a lot of things in characteristics, not in work, because Jesus had a different work to do on the cross than you do. Thank God you don't have to go to the cross for us because you had already blown the perfect, the perfect man thing, right? And so would I. So as our substitute, there were a lot of things that were different about Jesus than anything that any other man will ever experience or, or uh, need to take hold of. But as far as character is concerned, as far as the life of God is concerned, you got the same life as he had. you got the same powers he had. you got the same Holy Ghost as he had. you got the same life. For the Father loveth the Son, verse 20, and showeth him all things that he himself doeth, and will show him greater works than these that you may marvel. I love this. Jesus is taking a dig. He says, you think you don't understand some stuff now? You just wait. Here's the fourth thing in verse 21. He says, for as the Father raises up the dead and quickens them, makes them alive, even so the Son quickeneth whom he will. He's saying, not only am I equal with God, God has given me the ability to give life to whoever I choose. Now, folks, after the end of this discourse, I mean, we could stop right there and make the same statement. But at the end of this discourse, there's no place for the Jews to go. They have the same choice that everybody else has, and that is they can either reject him or believe on him. But there's no doubt about who Jesus is saying he is. Verse 22, for the father judges no man, but has committed all judgment unto him. Here's another declaration, but he says it again later on, so we won't mention it here. For as the father judges no man, but has committed unto uh, all judgment unto the son. Verse 23, that all men should honor the son, even as they honor the father. Now, this has got to be tough to swallow for the Jews. He's saying, if you honor God, you've got to honor me. You can't claim to honor God and dishonor me. When Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life, listen, folks, that was kind of anticlimactic. He's already been saying this stuff through his ministry. He said it publicly right in front of the Jews. Folks, this is not behind closed doors. This is not the Jews bringing him in before the council. This is Jesus saying it out in front of everybody that's there. Where the Jews tried to bring an accusation against Jesus and tried to make it a public thing, Jesus rips them to shreds publicly about who he is and who they are. 
Verse 23 again, that all men should honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He that honors not the Son honors not the Father which has sent him. So he says, yeah, I am equal with God and I'm deserving of the same honor that you give God. Verse 24, verily, verily, I say unto you, he that heareth my word and believeth on him that sent me, that's God the Father, has everlasting life and shall not come into condemnation, but is passed from death to life. Verse 25, verily, verily, I say unto you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and they that hear shall live. Here's the sixth declaration. For as the Father has life in himself, so hath he given to the Son to have life in himself. Yeah, I am equal with God. I've got the same life as he had. Finally, the seventh declaration, verse 27, and has given him, here's the Father who has given Jesus, the Son, authority to execute judgment also because he is the Son of Man. So notice what he says. He says, I'm equal with God for all these reasons, because I do the works of the Father, because there are no secrets between me and the Father, because he that honors the Father honors has to honor me in the same way, because God has given me the same life that he has in himself, because I have been given power to execute judgment upon the earth. Over and over and over again, he says, here's why I'm equal with God. Please notice that he's not trying, I'll say this again, he's not saying when the Jews said, oh, now we're going to kill you for sure because you're making yourself equal with God. Jesus says, yeah, here's why. He didn't say, no, you're twisting my words. He says, yeah, and here's why. Verse 28, marvel not at this, for the hour is coming in the which all that are in the grave shall hear his voice. Now, just by this statement, if no other, just by this statement, Jesus is saying, I'm not your average guy. It's not just the people that are going to hear me preach here on the earth that are going to be affected. People that are already in the, already in the graves are going to be judged by my words too. And they shall come forth, verse 29, they shall come forth, and they that have done good unto the resurrection of life, and they that have done evil unto the resurrection of damnation. I can of mine own self do nothing. As I hear, I judge. And my judgment is just because I seek not my own will, but the will of the Father which has sent me. So in this passage between verse, uh, uh, well, the, the, the first half, first part of the last half of the, the chapter, Jesus makes seven declarations of why he is the Son of God. Now let's stop here for a minute. It, the last, uh, whatever, the last 15, 16 verses of the chapter, it's going to shift gears a little bit. Because now he's not going to talk about why he's the Son of God or, or uh, declarations of his deity. Now he's going to talk about the witnesses of this being true. But stop and think about this for a minute. When Jesus was in the feast, of, was at uh, the feast of the Passover in chapter two, it talks about all the miracles that he did. It talked about the multitudes that followed him as a result of it. It talked about all the people that believed because they saw the miracles. The Jewish leaders, these same Jewish leaders that were um, uh, that are spoken of in chapter five, were there during the feast of the Passover, and it turned Jerusalem upside down because nobody had come to Jerusalem and done miracles like that, like Jesus did ever. There were some Old Testament prophets that would do miracles from time to time. But number one, none of them were in the temple. None of them were in Jerusalem. 
Most of them are out in the wilderness some way or another, and they didn't do them with the frequency of what Jesus did. Now, when Jesus starts talking about the works bear witness of, of the fact that he is the Son of God, think about the works that he did. He didn't do anything behind closed doors. That doesn't mean that everything was done in front of a big crowd, but everything that he did was publicized to the, to the, uh, to, in the mainstream. It was publicized. It went out to the public. It, there was very much common knowledge about anything. It's not like anybody was trying to keep anything hush-hush. And the stuff that he did wasn't minor stuff. Just like with this guy at the Pool of Bethesda. This is a tremendous miracle that took place with Jesus just speaking the commandment to be healed. Rise, take up your bed and walk. That's all Jesus ever said. He asked him a question before then, will you be made whole? But then the only other thing Jesus said, that which brought about his healing is rise, take up your bed and walk. After that, Jesus spends all his time talking to the Jews that are saying, oh, you're in the wrong because you did this on the Sabbath day. Well, why? Can God not heal on the Sabbath day? Why should the Sabbath day have anything to do with anything? It doesn't except for their traditions. And what they're doing is they're taking their traditions, they're taking their idea about how God is and what the things, how the God, things of God work, and they're saying every man has to be held accountable to our ideas rather than what the Bible says about God. So now Jesus is going to shift gears. These guys know. Uh, let me, I started to make the point and lost my place. Let me go back to the, the point I was going to make. Since they were at Jerusalem at the Passover, They saw the miracles. They know about the miracles. Jesus disappears for about a a month and a half. But now he comes back for the Feast of Pentecost. During that period of time, the Jews are not waiting for him to come back to see what else he's going to do. They have decided, they have come to the place where they have determined we are against this guy because he's not part of our group. So when he starts doing something on the Sabbath day, something that breaks their tradition, they jump all over that. And that's what Jesus is going to hit them in the face with. Verse uh, 31, if I bear witness of myself, my witness is not true. There is another that beareth witness of me, and I know that the witness which he witnessed of me is true. Now, most people think since he starts talking about John the Baptist that he's talking about John the Baptist being the other witness, but he's not. I'll prove it to you. Let's keep reading. He's just reminding them that they asked John about who was who. Verse 33, he said, you sent unto John, and he bore witness unto the truth. Remember when they sent a counsel to John, saying, who are you? And who gave you the authority to baptize like this? You remember that? That's over in John chapter 1, about verse 20, I think it is. I think it starts in verse 20. Jesus is simply reminding them, wait a minute. Remember, you sent a counsel to John. You sent a group to John to question him about whether he was the Messiah. You remember what John said? John said, I'm just a voice in the wilderness saying, prepare the way for the Lord. The Messiah is coming after me, and I'm not worthy to tie his shoes. He bore witness of the truth. That's what Jesus is saying. He's saying, you've got one that you claim to listen to that told you about me. You sent unto John, and he bare witness unto the truth, but I received not testimony from man. So John can't be the, the, the testimony or the witness that he's talking about in verse 32. No, he's just reminding them, you even heard the truth from John and you wouldn't believe it. But I receive not the testimony of man, but these things I say that you might be saved. Keep that in mind. Keep that phrase in mind. He, John, was a burning and a shining light, and you were willing for a season to rejoice in his light. You liked him for a little while, didn't you? Until he started telling you you were in the wrong. But I have a greater witness than that of John 
for the works. Here's the first witness. He mentions three witnesses. The Bible says in the mouth of two or three witnesses, let every word be established. He mentions three witnesses. He said, but the works for the works which the Father has given me to finish, the same works that I do, bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. Remember, Jesus said in John chapter 14, when he's talking to his disciples on the night that he was betrayed, he told, um, uh, who was it, Philip that said, show us the Father and it will suffice us. And he said, Philip, have I been so long with you and have you not known me? He that has seen me has seen the Father. Believest thou me that I am in the Father and he in me, or else believe for the very work's sake. In other words, he's saying, you can take the works that I've done. And again, remember, these things were not done in back alleys somewhere. These things weren't done in the shadows. These things were done out in the open for everybody to see. And they were such miraculous, power-filled miracles that nobody could explain it. Nicodemus, one of the Jewish council, even comes and says, we know you've got to be sent from God because no man can do this stuff that you do. Nobody, nobody can do the miracles that you do unless God is with them. The miracles, the works that Jesus did were the testimony, first of all, that God had sent him. And the council should know that because one of their own, Nicodemus in chapter 3, has already identified that to Jesus. Verse 37. Here's the second witness. And I believe this is the witness that, he, that is talked about in verse 32. There is another witness that beareth witness, or there is another that bears witness of me. And I know that the witness which he witnesses is of me is true. I think he's talking about the Father. Verse 37, and the Father himself which has sent me has borne witness of me. You have neither heard his voice at any time nor seen his shape. And you have not his word abiding in you for you have, for whom he has sent him you believe not. Now, theologians are divided on whether or not Jesus is talking about when he was baptized in John's, uh, uh, in the Jordan River by John or not. You remember in, um, uh, the Gospels, it tells us that when Jesus was baptized, it says there was a voice from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased. John bore witness that the Holy Ghost descended on Jesus and remained there and that that was the sign that he was looking for to know who was the Messiah. Well, this voice that took place in front of a lot of people, because you remember when Jesus came to John to be baptized, men were coming from all quarters. We saw from Matthew's gospel that Roman soldiers were being baptized by John in the Jordan River. We saw that some of the Jews, the Pharisees, were being baptized. We saw that there were people that were coming from outside of Israel, Gentile countries, that had heard about John's ministry. Everybody's coming from everywhere. So when Jesus shows up and John baptizes him and this voice comes from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, we could cer certainly say that was the testimony of God, couldn't we? Who else would it be that would be saying that? But not everybody accepted that it was taking place. Some said that was thunder. Not everybody accepted the word. And it seems to say where Jesus is saying, you wouldn't hear his word. How did he say it? Uh, verse, the end of verse 37, you have neither heard his word or his voice at any time nor seen his shape. Well, if they haven't heard his voice, then how could they have... How could he be referring to when the voice came from heaven saying, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased? No, the word or the voice that he's talking about is the prophecies of the Old Testament. He's talking about all the things that God has witnessed in the past about the Messiah to come. Notice it says in verse 38, and you have not his word abiding in you. For whom, you for whom he has sent, him you believe not. Then he says something interesting. Here's the third witness. He says, search you the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life. And they are they which testify of me. Now, 
The Old Testament is divided in two main sections. First, the law, and secondly, the prophets. You've got the law of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, and then the rest of it you've got that's considered to be the prophets. So here where he says that the Father is bearing witness of him, he's talking about the prophets. Here where he says in the next verse, verse uh, 39, where he says, search the scriptures, he's talking about the law of Moses. He says, for in them you think you have eternal life. Well, in what? In what the prophets said? No, that's not what brought eternal life. What brought life was the law. <clears throat> Choose life by obeying the word. Behold, I set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Choose life that you and your seed may live. That's what he's saying. He's saying you think in the law of Moses, you've got eternal life. But that's what speaks of me. So here's the third witness that he refers to. They are they, they the scriptures, the law of Moses, are they which testify of me. Now, before I go any further, I want you to notice something. He's going to really indict them about their condition. But it all goes back to verse 38. Notice it says, and you have not his word abiding in you. Here's the bottom line, the basis, the baseline. He's saying, here's what happens when somebody doesn't have the word abiding in them. Now, remember, folks, this is not just a, well, we didn't know what to believe. They've made an active choice to reject Jesus. They had the opportunity during the feast of the Passover, to accept that Jesus was the miracle worker, was the Son of God, because he was working miracles. But they don't. By the time Jesus gets back for the feast of Pentecost, they've taken a hard line against him. We don't care who he thinks he is. We don't care what he does. He's not one of us, and so we refuse to accept him. And that's what Jesus is speaking of when he says, and you have not his, have not his, God's word, my Father's word abiding in you. Notice all the things that he says of them. Verse 40, and you will not come to me. Why? Because you don't have the word abiding in you. That you might receive life. I receive not honor from men. In other words, Jesus is saying, I'm not here to receive applause from you or anybody else. I'm here to get you saved. Now think about that. Here's people that have made an active choice. The leaders of, of, of Judaism. And the headquarters in Jerusalem have made an active choice, a determined choice. We're not going to accept anything you say. We're not going to accept anything you do. It doesn't matter to us. We don't really care if you're sent from God. We don't care if you're the Son of God. It doesn't make sense to us. Therefore, we refuse to accept anything you say. That boggles my mind. Why would they not say, well, look, Jesus, we don't think that the Messiah would come from Nazareth, much less a prophet. So could you explain to us where we're wrong here? I mean, the guy's doing miracles after all. Even if he's doing something on the Sabbath day, they might say, I, I, it just seems to me, I, here's the way I would have approached it. I would have said, listen, I didn't think God did that stuff on the Sabbath day. What's going on here? But I wouldn't have said, look, just because you healed that guy and did a miracle in him, don't think that's going to make me believe. Seriously? Why? Because they don't have the word abiding in So he says, I didn't come to receive applause of men. I came to get you saved, the very ones that are now rejecting him. But I know you, verse 42, but I know you that you have not the love of God in you. Why? Because his word abides not in you. Verse 38. I am come in my father's name and you receive me not. Here's the, the third thing that he indicts him with. He said, you won't receive me. But then he turns around and he said, now, if somebody comes along, if somebody else comes along in his own name, him you receive. If somebody comes along bragging about themselves, talking about who they are and why they're so great and why you should be listening to them, you'll accept that. But I don't even come in my own name. I come in the name of the Father. Verse 44, how can you believe 
which receive honor one of another and seek not the honor that comes from God only. Now, folks, here's what happens when you don't have the word abiding in you. You're looking for honor from men. You're looking to be popular with other people instead of seeking the honor that comes from God. We've all heard of peer pressure. You know how peer pressure takes people away from the things of God? Because of this verse right here. The only way that peer pressure, the only thing that somebody else and what somebody else is doing or what somebody else is not doing can pull you away from the truth of the word is if you care more about what they think than what God thinks. And that's what Jesus says. Jesus says, how can you believe? Notice what the end result is. If you're seeking applause of men, if you're seeking approval from men instead of approval from God. And by the way, the Bible says, study to show yourself approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. That's what Paul told Timothy. The only thing the Bible ever really says about being approved of God is study the word. So approval from God comes from letting the word abide in you. But if you don't, then that means you're going to care more about what other people think than what God thinks. And you'll never be able to operate in faith that way. How can you believe? Which receive honor one of another and seeketh not the honor that cometh from God only. Do not think that I will accuse you to the Father. Personally, I think he's got a right to, don't you? But that's not what he came to do. He said, don't think I'm going to accuse you to the Father. There is one that accuses you already, even Moses in whom you trust. For if you had believed Moses, you would have believed me, for he wrote of me. Now think about what he's telling them. These are the, the scholars. These are the doctors of the law. These are the guys that know the Old Testament. I mean, the, whatever Moses said, as far as they're concerned, that's it. That's God's word. That's the end of it. And Jesus said, Moses wrote about me. So when Moses wrote about the water coming from the rock in the wilderness, who's he writing about? Writing about Jesus. When he writes about the pillar of fire that led them by night or kept them by night and the pillar of cloud that led them during the day, who's he writing about? He's writing about Jesus. When he writes about the angel of the Lord that helped them defeat their enemies, who's he writing about? He's writing about Jesus. When he writes about the manna in the wilderness, who's he writing about? He's writing about Jesus who gives us our daily bread. Everything about what Moses said is Jesus, and they refuse to accept it. Now, folks, they could have. Again, I've got to make the point. It's not like they just slipped up and said, well, we should have given that more thought. No, they did give it thought, and they made an active determination. They're not going to accept anything that Jesus said, no matter what it is. If you had believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? Here's the last thing, the fifth thing that he indicts them with. Because they have not the word of God abiding in them. If you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? We looked at chapter 4, what Jesus was like among the Gentiles. Notice what he's like in the temple among the Jews. He didn't pull any punches. And John gives us first-hand testimony, eyewitness testimony, that Jesus declared over and over and over and over again, I am equal with God the Father. I am the Son of God, and here's why. You wonder how in the world everybody in Israel didn't believe on him. At least I do. And I think that's the point that John's trying to make. By revealing these things and, and calling these things to remembrance. I think John's trying to wrap it up one in one 
neat little package, tied up with a bow, ribbon on top type thing, so that anybody that's teaching otherwise in his day have no defense. How do you argue with these things? John was there. He was an eyewitness. And folks, John is the most famous Christian in the world at the time that these things are written. They've tried to boil him in oil and can't kill the guy. He's known to be the one man alive that walked with Jesus and saw these things firsthand. So when John relates this stuff, when John writes a letter and says Jesus was the Son of God, what does that do to these other teachers out there saying that he wasn't? Well, the people that he writes to have the same choice that the Pharisees did. They can either believe his testimony or they can reject it. Thank God we can believe. Amen? Folks, Jesus is the Son of God. And He's the Son of God for all the reasons He listed, and there's probably a lot more that He could have said. And for that reason, He's made you just as much a child of God. The Bible says just as Jesus was equal with God, you've been made joint heirs. That means equal with Jesus. For many of the same reasons. Now, thank God judgment's not delivered into your hands or mine. That's something unique to Him. But you got the same life that God the Father has. You do the same works that Jesus did because the Father lives in you. You've got the same potential to finish the work that God gave you to do that Jesus had to finish His work. Oh, if we could only realize what it means to be made new creatures in Christ Jesus. If it would just dawn on us, if our eyes could just be opened to the reality of who we are in Christ and what belongs to us through the power of His name. The world couldn't hold us. I mean that literally. The world could not hold us. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you that we have been made new creatures in Christ Jesus. We've been made the righteousness of God in Christ, the same righteousness that Jesus had, the same equality with the Father through nature, not in work, not in what we're called to do, But in the nature of God, we've been made joint heirs with Him. Father, just as Jesus said, there were no secrets that you showed Him all things that you do. I thank you that there are no secrets between us and you either. Thank you, Father, that you reveal yourself to us. Thank you that you open the eyes of our understanding so that we know what is the hope of your calling and the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints and the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. We thank you, Father, for granting unto us, according to the riches of your glory, that we might be strengthened with the Holy Spirit in our inner man, that Christ may dwell in our hearts by faith, and that we, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the length and depth and breadth and height, and that we might know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Father, that's our prayer even as Paul prayed by the Holy Ghost for us, cause us to see who we are through Jesus and through His wonderful work of redemption. For it's in His precious name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, praise the Lord. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.